You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 226 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today, Ponce Drunk. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today here at the end of the semester, or the beginning of a new semester, or the end of a new semester, Nathan Gilmore, who's an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? Going well. We wrapped up fall semester before Thanksgiving, and tomorrow I give my final exams for the winter term semester, so uh, I am also wrapping up a semester, just not in the same sense that you two are. Absurd. Uh, joining me in finals week, I think, is David Grubbs, who's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David? That's correct. It's reading day. Oh, we don't have a reading day. Nor do we. Yeah. We do. Do your students read? Or do they use it to like lay out on the quad or whatever young people do? I it's in the forties today, so Play any the of them that are laying guitar. out on the quad, they're they're welcome to it. Did you did you get any snow in Houston, David? I saw that it snowed all over the southeast. We did. We actually uh I got up um Friday morning and yeah, I actually had to scrape snow off of my windshield. It was um, it was extraordinarily strange. I, I had to dig for a snow scraper. I thought I thought I had one and uh, rooted around and eventually found it under the seat of the passenger seat of of my car where it had been for the last three years. Listener, so. you've never you've never seen anybody as happy as David Grubbs was when he flew into Minneapolis last month and it was thirty degrees outside. It was lovely. It was like living in the inside inside of minty freshness. It was it was so wonderful. Well, our episode today is on Kazuo Ishiguro's novel, The Remain of the The Remains of the Day. Uh, Ishiguro just run, won the Nobel Prize for Literature. This is his most famous novel. We've been trying to do episodes on the Nobel winners, although I don't know how often we've succeeded. This is our second year in a row, and we also did Alice Munro a few years before that. Uh, but here we are to talk about The Remains of the Day. When I first heard about this book, back when I was in college, I was really confused that a person with a Japanese name, which I'm sure I have terribly mispronounced, would write a novel about an archetypal English butler. Uh, so if any of our listeners are similarly confused, I think a bit of biographical information would probably be helpful here. Grubbs, who is Kazuo Ishiguro, and where does The Remains of the Day fit in with the rest of his career? Sure. Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro is uh, is Japanese, as his name well implies. Um, but the, why, why is he writing why is he writing novels about English butlers? He was uh, 
And then this is just the bio at the front of the book. Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro was born in Nagasaki, Japan in 1954 and moved to Britain in 1960. So his, his father was a scientist and uh, a, some, some sort of uh, professional opportunity opened up in England. Um, uh, according to uh, article, an old and a very old 1989 New York Times article uh, that I, that I found uh, said that they thought that it was going to be a short visit, but he ended up um, he ended up basically being there um, into adulthood, and uh, as far as I know, is still there. Um, he, so he he grew up in England. He went to British schools. Um, this is. Uh, this is his. Uh, this is his culture. Um, this is his language. Um, said that he would. He he. Uh, in this article from '89, which is um, the year after uh, this this book was published, um, that he would speak Japanese at home with his parents, um, but otherwise uh, his life was was pretty much anglophone. Uh, in terms of his career, this is his third novel. Uh, the first is A Pale View of Hills from oh, 82, 84, something like that. Uh, the second was An Artist of the Floating World in, I believe, 85 or 86, and then this one. Uh, you asked is, is, uh, where this falls in his career. Uh, he won book awards of different kinds for his first two novels, and then in this third one, he won another uh, uh, another significant book award, the 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 Booker Prize. And uh, and then shortly thereafter, it was produced as a film, um, uh, starring uh, Hannibal Lecter and. Um, that lady who teaches herbology at Hogwarts. So, uh, I think that's Anthony Hopkins. I don't know who teaches herbology at Hogwarts. Was it herbology or was it or was um? Just say the name <laughs> of the actress, Grubs. I can't remember her name. I'm like looking at her face, and and zero name is coming. Which right, is it Emma Thompson? Thing in the world. I think yes, it's Emma thank Thompson. Thank you. Emma Thompson, thank she's you. The, oh, uh, she's the divination professor at Hogwarts, I believe. Sorry, sorry, divination. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, the, the, the edition of the book that I've got has their pictures on the cover, looking thoughtful and pensive and very, very British. Did either of you uh, bother to watch the movie? No, I didn't. Me neither. I, uh, I remember when it came out reading reviews of it in the newspaper. Um, but I never saw it. Does anything about this novel read as Japanese to either one of you? I mean, I've 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 heard that Ish- Ishiguro does not really consider himself connected to Japanese culture, uh, and so maybe it shouldn't be surprising if it doesn't read as Japanese. Nor am I familiar enough with Japanese culture to say whether it would or not without relying on some sort of nasty stereotype. But I wonder if either of you had any kind of insight into that. I mean, I've read a couple dozen Japanese novels, and I mean, I I didn't see any real strong affinity with, you know, Abe Kobo or with, you know, Yukio Mishima or, you know, 
any of the Japanese novelists I'm familiar with. Uh, David, I mean, do you see anything here? I don't. It doesn't. It, that it doesn't sound that way to me. I mean, maybe if you came into it with a strong sense of what the Japanese novel is, um, you could pull some of that out. Um, part of it, though, is is uh, I I know just from from reading up on him that uh, that that Eng English is his language. It's the language he wrote the novels in. He was educated in England. The literature of England is the literature that he's that you know he he was immersed in, and this novel is strongly in that tradition. So right, uh, I, the. Uh, the, the New York Times article that I was referred to, it, it begins um, that it says whenever Kazuo Ishiguro goes on the road to promote his books, he has to spend much of his time explaining himself. People assume he writes in Japanese. He writes in English. They assume that his spare elliptical style is the tradition of Japanese poetry. It isn't. Uh, and then... He, he, he says that some reviews of my first book said, you can only tell now and again that it's a translation. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I kind of feel that if the name on the cover were, were Ni Nigel Grinch Gibbons or John Blabington Smythe or whatever, uh, it wouldn't... It wouldn't right. You know, I, I don't think there's anything here that reads as particularly Japanese. If we were reading his first two novels, both of them have Japanese protagonists. And both of them are set um, in the in the wake of the Second World War. Um, one, one actually being set in, uh, well, but yeah, both both of them being set in 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 post-war Japan, from what I from what I understand. Um, so that the fact that he was uh, that he was born in Nagasaki, um, I think. Uh, I think brings that brings that point home, um, and but there's no uh, there's there's nothing there's no strong uh, emphasis on Japan uh, in this novel, but World War II is strongly present in this novel. So yeah, that's true. Uh, Although mostly the European side of it. Exactly, exactly. So it's so it's it's as if he had this interest in the ways that people are uh, the ways that people's lives are affected by um these these larger national and international um eruptions confusions dissensions um and he moves that interest into a different uh into a different sphere one that he's more familiar with from his uh from his growing up Nathan, when we were, well, when you were in the midst of reading this book, you complained that you hadn't realized it was going to be a comedy of manners, and you, apparently you're not fond of that genre. I'm not even sure I'd call it a comedy of manners. So now that you've finished it, what do you think? Is it a comedy of manners, or is it something else? And if it's something else, what is it? Well, first of all, just in case our listeners haven't taken intro to lit recently, uh, a comedy of manners uh, relies on basically, you know, sort of discussions of minutia, uh, you know, a very codified uh, set of expectations for social encounters, and often one character coming into another code, if you will, uh, so that you get kind of a clash of stock characters. So, you know, this is the 
uh, cowboy who wanders into the opera house. Uh, this is the Samurai Deli from Saturday Night Live. Uh, you know, this is, like I said, you know, a, a comedy that relies on that sort of thing. And now that I've finished the novel, uh, it certainly starts as a comedy of manners. Uh, you know, you get these long discussions of, you know, the American penchant for banter. And, you know, Stevens wondering if he should learn the art of banter and whether he should spend his time uh, improving as a banterer. Uh, and it just goes on and on about this. Um, as the novel rolls on, I mean, it, it certainly shifts focus uh, so that, you know, it's a lot more discussion of relationships between private worlds and public worlds that we're going to talk about as we roll along here. Uh, but then, I mean, the very last lines of the novel, uh, you know, as he is, you know, writing off into an ending that we will discuss later. So listeners, if you haven't read it yet, be sure you should know this. When we talk about novels, we're going to spoil them. Uh, but, you know, he wonders, uh, you know, should he go ahead and start learning to banter again? So, I mean, it returns to that. So, you know, the, the comedy of, of manners genre, like I said, uh, just because I tend to live in the footnotes when I read one of them, isn't necessarily my favorite kind to read. Uh, this one, like I said, because it didn't stay there for the entire novel, I didn't mind it as much. Uh, David, did you see that going on, or am I just, uh, overly sensitive to this after too many Ben Johnson comedies? I don't know that I've immersed myself in comedies of manners and enough to really be able to comment on their, their tendencies and tropes. Not That's, a medieval genre. No. But... Uh, that's a lot of Austin, right? Yes, certainly. There's, and there's, certainly. There's, I think there's a pretty, pretty clear Austin slash Henry James influence okay. on the remains of the day. Okay, okay. Um, that oh gosh, that Daisy Miller. Oh, look at the gauche American. She doesn't know how things are done. See, also every other Henry James novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, ha I guess I haven't read enough Henry James to know what is typical of said Henry James. Um. There is there is that concern for um, for protocol and what is the done thing, and uh, the the concern that I mostly know through Austin novels um, that turns what would be very small conversational moments into uh, enormously important cri important crises. All right, that the that our 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 protagonist will just sort of mull over for days and years to come. Um, I mean that that strikes me as as comedy of manners type material. Except uh, except in mm -hmm. Austin, from the outside, we can recognize those those things as as relatively trivial. They're not mm -hmm. they're not huge world historical problems whereas here mm -hmm. he's using the language of the comedy of manners in some ways except the problems are not is lizzie bennett gonna marry darcy the The problems are will will the united kingdom join with the with uh german uh, nazi germany you know you know right I mean? oh oh yeah yeah Abs absolutely the stakes there are higher but the the moments that I'm thinking of are not are not those moments that we see of as incredible international moment. Um, it's it's the moments uh, 
where he wrestles for days over whether his over whether or not his banter was understood. <laughs> um, the, the, right. the, those kinds, or, or, those, or those kinds of new, things strike me as comedy of manners. Yeah, or when his new American employer Faraday makes a joke with him about his sex life and he just has no idea what to do with it. Yes. Or the funniest scene in the whole novel when Stevens is asked to tell a 25-year-old man the facts of life uh, and and uh, he goes to him and stumbles awkwardly through it and the young man says, oh, don't worry, I have a briefca- briefcase of information going over this from all angles. <laughs> that's That's really kind of classic comedy of manners stuff, I think. Oh, absolutely, right. absolutely. I mean, that, they're that's... talking about two different things, by the way. The, 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 yeah. the, this is the joke that I fell for when Michael set it up for. Gosh, must have been four or five years when, uh, you know, there would be some scandal in the news about a professor's sexual relations with a student, and Michael would say, "Oh, I've got a documentary about that at home," and I'd say, "Really?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, comedy of manners in those things, but um, I wouldn't say it's primarily that. No, just, and here's the thing, I mean, this novel is set up as a sort of frame narrative that takes place well after World War II, and then a series of flashbacks that kind of lead up to World War II, and in the frame story, it, there's a lot of comedy of manners. In the flashbacks, yeah. there's not nearly as much. But it still uses the language of comedy of manners. I mean, that's what's oh, so absolutely, yeah, yeah. So here's how I think of it: I think of this book as like a Haydn string quartet, and I I really think of um, Austin in those terms. It's this perfectly controlled, very mannerly, um, you, you know, beautiful uh, piece. Except as this novel progresses, it starts to turn dissonant. And by the time you notice that it's turned dissonant, you're fully into it. So I, I, it is a comedy of manners in some senses, but it's using that genre for way more sinister purposes. And I, I should say, I, I made that crack about poor Henry James, whom I love. James does the same thing, uh, although not, not as, uh, not on such a large scale as Ishiguro does in this novel. Right, he's not he's not turning all of European politics into this. No, I, I mean James is still interested in the, in the James I've read. He's still interested in individual lives in a way that this book is interested in individual lives, but it connects them to this larger thing that no James I have read does, and certainly no Austin. Right. I mean, right. you get like um, Mansfield Park has this slavery underpinning, but. Austin herself doesn't draw that out. It takes critics to do that. Uh, Edward Said has a really good essay about it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could say that stuff is always there in Austin or James or whoever, but in Ishiguro, to some extent, it's the point. Right. Right. Well, and the fact that our narrator can't sort of see outside of the filter of the comedy of manners means that he has been... Uh, an uninsightful reader of his own life. Yeah, I think that's right. He's a he's an unreliable narrator because he's so committed. He's so committed to a to a genre. Uh, yeah. The the TV tropes people call it wrong genre aware. I think. 
<laughs> nice. Yeah. He thinks now, he's in one kind of story, but really he's in a very different kind of story. Right. Now, I will say, though, that we as readers, when we observe him and how he narrates, we can see flashes of involvement, even if not awareness. You know, mm. so, I mean, I mean, when he is thinking about the sins of Darlington, which we'll, we'll talk about mm-hmm. later, he denies him as, you know, Peter denies the Christ. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it, it's a complex dynamic. It's, it's not a total lack of involvement in these things. Uh, but I, I would agree that, I mean, it's a lack of, of awareness to be sure. Mm-hmm. Well, we've already kind of, we've already kind of moved into the next question. So Grubbs, tell me more about the narrative voice here. Who, who is Stevens? Who's talking to us and who are we? Because because he seems to be addressing a specific group of people, but I'm not exactly sure who that specific group of people. I, I wrote, "Who am I?" throughout, the <laughs> which I guess is the question good novels make you ask. Right. Uh, the narrative voice who's talking to us is Stevens, uh, the the butler of uh, the uh, the Darlington of Darlington Hall. Uh, who has been um, at this house for decades, and so even after Lord Dar- uh, Lord Darlington passes and the and the hall is acquired by um, this uh, rich American guy who's in the at, at, in the beginning of the book, um, Faraday. Yes, Mister Faraday. Uh, Stevens is still Stevens is still at the hall. He's he he is an institution, um, in 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 the way that that people who are long associated with an organization become kind of institutions, become part of the uh, part of the tradition of the place. He is uh, he is interesting. We've already we we've already talked about. Uh, we we already used the word unreliable narrator. I think was that was that you, Michael? I think yeah, maybe. I called him unreliable. Um, unreliable narrator. He it's a first person narrator uh, narrative. He's speaking to us the whole time, so all of it is filtered through his perspective, his personality. Um, when you talk about unreliable narrators, there's basically three reasons why uh, a a narrator is is unreliable. Um, they may be insane. Think Poe's Telltale Heart, where he starts off by assuring you that he is not insane, and he he proves it by telling you that he can hear voices in heaven and hell. Um, to sh- so of course, yes, he's crazy. Uh, they might be unreliable because they are intentionally deceptive, or they might be unreliable because they are naive. And often this is a Often the naive narrator is a child narrator or an adult telling their story, telling a story um, from when they were a child, and you might have that blending of perspectives. Um, in this case, our narrator, I would call him in some senses a naive narrator, um, presenting his perspective from the moment, but also as we go through the novel, uh, his current perspective. But even his current perspective still has a kind of a kind of filter you 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 I I don't think the at least I as a reader um, was seldom reaching conclusions about what was going on in the story that matched up with what Stevens perception was 
Um, so why is that? Uh, and this is this is this is my best stab at who are we. Um, he talks a long time about butlering. We're going to talk more about butlering. But one of the points, uh, one of the things that he says is uh, is that a butler a, but, a butler never appears um, in public outside of the butler persona. The butler is always on in that sense. Um, the mask never slips. My take is that this is an internal um, this is an internal monologue and he's actually sort of constructed an imaginary person that he speaks to still in his butler character. Hmm. That, that, that even in his self-talk he wears the face. Because um, there's a lot of as you know about butlering yes which yes i guess i do know <laughs> um because i can't imagine this character having this conversation with us with a living soul well but that that makes it interesting too because the the other thing he he assumes about his audience is we all know who lord darlington is and we all think he's a nazi Mm-hmm. Right. And I guess for that reason, I, I took him to be talking to one of his young staffers uh, at the mm. much reduced Darlington Hall. Uh, but, mm. but David, I like your theory about the, you know, constructed interlocutor. Uh, it might be better than my idea. <laughs> well, I, I, this is just because I can't imagine the character that I see in the story having this conversation with anyone. If, if he is so restrained with Miss Kenton, later Mrs. Ben, who has perhaps more than anyone else in his entire life seen behind the mask most. Um, if he is so restrained, even in even in his relation with him, what other possible human being could he be telling this to? Right, and you you call him naive, but I I don't think that's the right word for it. I think, mm-hmm. especially if yeah. he's addressing himself here, what we're dealing with is a kind of chosen bad faith Mm -hmm. and and that's that's why that's why your theory is interesting to me in terms of lord darlington because it suggests that stevens really does judge him morally which he's not he he says over and over again it's not the butler's job to judge his employer morally and yet if he's having if he's saying what you know you probably think he's you probably think he's a bad man but he's really not we have to judge him by blah 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 blah. that that suggests Mm -hmm. that deep down he knows he knows that what he's doing is in bad face. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's why I thought it was another person because I didn't think of the scenario where he'd be justifying his own justification to himself. That, that seemed, but that seems too recursive, I guess. D- doesn't he seem like an incredibly recursive person though? Yeah. Now that you say that he does, I just didn't think about that while I was reading it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this, this is a character who in order to master repartee, listens to radio shows in which the in which he has heard the repartee is excellent and then demos instances of repartee like games repartee scenarios in his head or he could just enjoy it i mean he makes up similar excuses when he gets caught reading romance novels but leaves but leaves it to Miss Kenton's character as he tells the story to even identify what the novel is. Ah, oh, fair enough, fair enough. 
But that too, I, that too is it, that shows in bad faith, right? Because because rather than just admitting he enjoys a radio program or a romance novel, he has to tie it back into his job. Mm-hmm. It, which he immediately does with the romance novel. He's like, "Yes, I was just reading a book because it was around, and I'm improving my vocabulary." And what? Um, I feel very sad for him because he seems, I mean, you, you use the word bad faith. Um, uh, he makes me think of, he makes me think of characters in Dante's hell who are incapable of telling, telling themselves the truth about themselves. Um, yeah. Well, it's like the 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 really the really heartbreaking scene is the one where his father dies, right? Yeah. So I I've got it open. Uh if you've got the vintage edition, this is page 97. He went on looking at his hands for a moment. His father's dying and but there's a big party going on downstairs. Then he said slowly, "I hope I've been a good father to you." I laughed a little and said, "I'm so glad you're feeling better now. I'm proud of you. A good son. I hope I've been a good father to you. I suppose I haven't." I'm afraid we're extremely busy right now, but we can talk again in the morning. <laughs> like, that's brutal. And that's the last time he ever talks to his father. Because his father dies while he's downstairs at this party. And he's trying to have this rapprochement between them. And Stephen can't allow himself to be open to him. Not even in his internal narration. Right? There's no sense that he recognizes this as the great tragedy of his life. We, we rec- And this is the sense in which he's an unreliable narrator, even when narrating his own emotions. Yeah. I mean, it is left to other people to say that Stevens looks like he has been crying. You know, to, to, a couple times towards the end of the book, there's the suggestion that, 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 that he is shedding tears, but it is to other characters in the scene to identify that as having happened. In its way, he reminds me a little bit of uh, Holden Caulfield from The Catcher in a Rye, who I think is unreliable in very similar ways. And you could say, well, Holden's insane. He does end up in an insane asylum at the end. But I don't think he is. I think I think he, like uh, like Stevens, has, has just chosen this world he's going to live in. And the author leaves it up to us to recognize that this world is not real. The, the 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 most important things about himself he is concealing probably even from himself mm-hmm. Nathan uh perhaps to your chagrin the novel includes a number of lengthy discourses about the nature of butlering and Stevens's big idea is that the quality that separates a bad butler from a good one and a good one from a great one is this thing dignity uh, what does he mean by that term, and how does the novel complicate that term as it progresses? Well, I'm actually going to start at the end and kind of work my way backwards because the absolute best articulation of it is uh, very deep in the novel, 210 in the uh, vintage paperback edition. Uh, you know, he is at a pub, you know, talking with some folks that he's... Uh, well, I mean, you know, the, he's met in his travels. Uh, and someone asks him, you know, what do you think dignity is all about? Mm-hmm. The directness of this inquiry did, I admit, take me rather by surprise. Quote, it's a rather hard thing to explain in a few words, sir, I said. But I suspect it comes to not removing one's clothing in public. 
Uh, and on a literal level, <laughs> this is just a, a great, uh, you know, take them off guard kind of moment. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. no one in the room knows what to do with this. But in a sense, as we've kind of been alluding to, this is the definition of the life of Stevens. He never removes his clothing. Uh, and listeners, if you can take that allegorically, his butler persona in public. Right. The scene that we just alluded to is one of the the chief ones, and it, and it goes all the way down because uh, he will not be interrupted from his duties as a butler, even to be with his father in his death. Afterwards, he won't allow himself to mourn properly, but instead considers this a great moment of his professionalism because he carried off this party, even in a moment of personal loss. Uh, this is, to a large extent, uh, you know, what keeps him and, you know, Miss Kenton uh, at the distance they remain from each other. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this is uh, what dignity is. It means that the persona, the character that you play, uh, is the sum total of yourself. Now, it's interesting, Michael, uh, because he is a good existentialist, and if you know an existentialist better than Michael Farmer, I don't believe you, uh, is going to regard this as bad <laughs> faith. Uh, in some sense, you know, this is uh, an argument about what the character of human nature is. I mean, do we have some sort of raw person that uh, somehow transcends the various roles that we play? It's very pronounced in the case of Stevens and his dignity because he seemingly only has one character. Uh, but, you know, I and again, this is where, you know, my... 90s postmodernist plays off against farmers, 50s existentialist, but I tend to think that, you know, our personality, whatever you want to call that abstract noun, is in some sense an aggregate of our characters rather than something that lies beyond the characters. So I'm I'm definitely, like Grubbs, you know, a little bit sad at the end of this novel that, uh, you know, he has had these opportunities to take on a different kind of character so that he can enjoy some complexity and some richness to existence. Uh, I'm not as convinced that, you know, there is a, an Ur Stevens buried somewhere. I just think he never developed other versions of Stevens. Uh, David, what do you think? Do you want a referee between us here? Stevens image of dignity. And this is from earlier. Uh, the, the issue of what makes a great Butler, uh, rises early in the book. And, he he tells stories from his father's life as an illustration of the principle as he's learned it and it 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 comes back to this it comes back to this dignity um his father's favorite story was of an unnamed butler who uh during a dinner party comes to his uh comes to his employer and says, Sir, there is a tiger in the house. I'm going to handle it. <laughs> and uh and you know the, the employer says, Very good. And then the butler comes back and says the, the tiger has been handled and it's been cleaned up, no worries. <laughs> and 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 uh and Stephen's father would tell this this tiger story as this is this is the height of butlering. For there to be in the midst of this, you know, social function over which the butler presides as a kind of ministering genius, that crisis would arise, the butler would handle it, and no one would even feel the tremors. 
Um, there, there, it, it's a kind of immensely powerful and even provident kind of image. Um, but then the story that he tells about his father is of his father being able to serve in the butlering as a butler and and, and even as a even as a valet um, a guest of his employer who had been uh, who was essentially responsible for the death of Stephen's brother in was it the Boer War what, 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 which which war was that Do you that sounds about war? right okay Whichever, it, it, was, it was either South Africa or India. I can't recall which it was. Um, but the, the brother had died in, in some military action, and the, the officer, the commanding officer, who had survived, um, bore in, in the, 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 general, uh, the general judgment, um, bore responsibility for this. And when he comes to visit, his, his employer offers Stephen's father an opportunity to duck out. But instead he says, no, this is my job. And he serves the man even to the point of being a personal body servant. And in the end, his, his, his employer actually um, is given a, an extra tip um, for the good service of Stephen's, Stephen's Sr. for this, which Stephen Sr. then refuses to accept. And that this is... This is the height of that butler's dignity that he that never once did his professionalism crack, even even at this even in this moment when everything that is personal should say um, should should be coming through, and yet it doesn't. Um, I, I I I kept thinking of that during this during the scenes in which. Stevens refuses to be with his father in his father's death, whether to some extent he saw himself as being a good son to his father by carrying on in that way. Um, it's, yeah, really, really interesting. The personal is not important in this view of dignity. Um, it's It's kind of exactly the opposite of of most of our instincts which is which is one of the reasons why um i kind of want to find something good in it and i do find i i did find some 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 things to sympathize about that there's a kind of stoic dignity in at least the father's story well and um, and stevens explicitly connects this with English stoicism. I don't know if he uses the word right. stoicism, but it's that stiff right. upper lip English quality because he says this is why the this is why on the continent they don't have any good butlers. Mhm. Well, it's it's almost a kind of Christ-like self-abnegation of I will serve my enemy. Um you know, I will I will go the second mile to the one who compels me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not the, not because not because you love them. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because you owe an absolute loyalty to your employer. Because the other story he tells about, and this will get us into the next question, the other story he tells about his father is his father is driving a couple of his employer's guests. The guests begin to badmouth the employer. Stevens' father just stops the car and goes and stares at them until they apologize. So that's not that. That's in some ways the. If you're looking at this as a Christ-like self-abnegation, it's doing the opposite of what the general story is doing. It, it's mm-hmm. just that his his feelings, 
are are so identical to the feelings of his employer that he um, mm-hmm. it's not about his enemy the thing with the mm-hmm. general is it, he wasn't the employer's enemy and that's what matters mm-hmm. yeah I love that scene where he stares down the guests that's that's just that 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 story is is amazing to me I, I, I really that that that's one of the ones that stick with that's stuck with me from this from this book well, uh, another aspect of being a great butler, according to Stevens, is to attach yourself to a great house with a great man at the center of the house. And he believes that he did so with Lord Darlington. I think it's pretty clear that Ishiguro disagrees with him on that front and that he expects the reader to as well. So, David, what are the problems with Stevens's blind faith in Lord Darlington? He's... <sighs> And he, he he says this later on in the book. He 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 talks of, of of about how much he had trusted Lord Darlington's judgment. Well, part of the problem of Stephen's blind faith in Darlington is that it isn't entirely blind. Uh, he he clearly sees many things which he shows us over the course of the novel. I mean, he's not telling us anything he doesn't know. It's, it's, it's a first-person narrative. Um, but it's not always clear that the significance of the story he tells and the facts that he shares uh, strike him as they would strike us. Uh, he also is living uh, and telling the story after World War II. So he, he, he knows what the results of... Uh, Lord Darlington's attempt to create some kind of uh, some kind of peace, some kind of negotiation, some kind of uh, stable relation that would prevent war by by bringing Britain and Nazi Germany together. Um, I mean, the, every every reader uh, every reader knows that's a terrible plan, and everything that Stevens shows us uh, indicates this as well but you never see him overtly come to that conclusion the closest thing that you have at the end is is when he says that he had he had trusted Dar- Lord Darlington's judgment implicitly he thought that he was a wise man that he was a good man um, but that Darlington himself was a naive man uh, a gentleman who believed that gentlemen could solve things in a gentlemanly manner but in fact, uh, he was not. Th- those those were not the those were not the rules. Those were not the conventions that were actually guiding the world at that moment. And so he became a tool, of uh, a, a tool of of Nazi Germany to try to manipulate the British and, and, and the the British government and even circumvent um, the Foreign Office's ability to uh, set policy. So. The problems, I mean, he, 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 he can't see what he sees, even though he'll show us, it's as if he doesn't see what's, what's actually happening. Um, he surrenders all moral thinking about the issue to Lord Darlington. Um, there's the, the, the scene in which Lord Darlington orders him to fire two housemaids because they are Jewish, and Stephen's 
refuses to have any kind of moral thoughts about it other than it is regrettable to fire someone. And then later when Darlington himself wishes that he could bring the maids back because he himself regrets it, um, says it was wrong. Uh, even when Stevens goes to Miss uh, to Miss Kenton because he thinks this will comfort her, she was she was upset by that. Um, he thinks that hearing hearing Darlington's regrets would would help her. Um, even the way he talks about Darlington's regrets is it was an error. It was a oh, what, I, I can't remember the exact word he uses, but he he soft pedals it. Uh, Darlington uses the word uses the language of confession of sin. Stevens uses the word of error of judgment. And uh, even, even then, it, even, even as, he, as he hears his employer's confession um, and shares it with another, he, he can't quite hear what was said. He can't say what was said. He can't tell the story in which Lord Darlington makes a moral, morally culpable decision without any kind of extenuating, uh, exonerating, side, uh, you know, side qualities or whatever. Right. I mean, what I mean, what else do we th- throw in here? That I mean, the the moral situation here is extraordinarily strange. He he's so proud of his ability to be the butler that manages these big events, um, and yet he he is so abstracted from the moral, uh, the actual moral ramifications of these events that 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 he is helping to orchestrate. Well, and his ultimate defense of Lord Darlington is amoral. I mean, this is page 235 of the vintage. He's talking to Mrs. Ben. Enough of this. I know you remember Darlington Hall in the days when there were great gatherings, when it was filled with distinguished visitors. Now that's the way his lordship deserves to be remembered. That's a completely amoral defense. It has nothing to do with whether those people were hatching up something evil or something good. It's completely yeah. about the social status of those guests. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, you know, great house and great man seems only to be great in terms of great encounters with influence with people whose influence is great. Um, but great for what influence towards what, um, it, Stevens repeatedly says it is beyond it's it's above his pay grade to make that kind of judgment of of those in, in those matters but that they are but that they are matters of great moment that they are great people and influential people um he has no question of right but then there's that strange moment you know in the I believe the 1960s where a visitor to Darlington you know in the Faraday era asks him if he served Lord Darlington, and he says, no, I didn't. So, I mean... That, what did y'all make of that? There, there is something going on there. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, Faraday's just mad as heck afterwards because, you know, he said, you know, I'm, I paid good money to have a proper English butler from the pre-war years, and, you know, I can't have you denying this because it makes me look a fool. Um, yeah. And, I you know, think he justifies it. 
uh, a few pages after that. Indeed, it seems to me, this is page 126, right at the end of day two. Indeed, it seems to me that my odd contact can be very plausibly explained in terms of my wish to avoid any possibility of hearing any further such nonsense concerning his lordship. That is to say, I have chosen to tell white lies in both instances as the simplest means of avoiding unpleasantness. So he's framing even that betrayal as a kind of loyalty because he knows that if if he mm-hmm. admits that he worked for Lord Darlington, he'd have to hear more about how Lord Darlington abetted the Nazis. Ah. Uh. Now, whether you believe that or not, I you, don't. You know, I mean, yeah, but but he is he is at least he is at least aware of the tension there. Mm-hmm. That 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 is one of those moments where I felt most strongly that we were hearing an internally constructed dialogue. Um, that that these are he's not justifying himself to another person; that he's justifying himself to that internal interlocutor who always hears and never gets to speak. Hmm. Well, one of the central tensions in this novel is between public and private. So on the one hand, we get a series of debates among the world historical figures about whether international affairs should be taken on publicly or privately. And then on the other hand, we get Stevens's running commentary on a butler's duty to disappear into his work. I'm going to give Grubbs a crack at the butlering in just a moment. But first, Nathan, I'd like to hear what you think about this international question. Does Do international affairs call for private amateurs or pragmatic public figures? Well, a lot of this hinges on what you think of Mr. Cardinal. Uh, Mr. Cardinal is an hmm, American yeah. uh, who comes to the, the great meeting of, of uh, officials at Darlington Hall. And at this meal, he has a moment where... Again, depending on how you read it, he is either making an appeal to the higher principles of Darlington and his guests, or he is insulting them. And I and I'll, I I went back and reread that, and I still can't decide which one it was. Uh, but he basically says that you know it is the English, the commendable English imperative to assist a fallen enemy that you've defeated that is leading to the rise of Nazi Germany. And by that he means that Darlington is bringing these National Socialist officials over. Uh, he is orchestrating things so that eventually Neville Chamberlain will go to uh, meet with Adolf Hitler uh, for what we know historically as the Munich Agreement, which of course came up during our uh, live episode at Dort. So I was reading this and talking about Ellie at the same time. Glorious stuff there. But... What's at stake here is, you know, Cardinal is either right in that, you know, these English gentlemen, because they are so concerned with this aristocratic honor that you extend to the fallen enemy, that it's going to inadvertently uh, lead to disaster in Europe, or he is sneering at them as he say, as he's saying this, saying, I know full well that you folks have an anti-Semitic streak a mile wide, but uh, you like to pretend that it's this noble obligation to your fallen enemy, so I am going to pull a Stephen Colbert on you and try to turn this into a mockery of your supposed virtue. Like I said, I still can't decide what's going on there. What I will say uh, is that it's hard to tell because Stevens puts up such a smokescreen to what extent Darlington is willfully 
bringing about the rise and the power of Nazi Germany and the extent to which Darlington is being snookered by the Nazis. Uh, honestly, I can easily construct a scenario in which he thinks that Germany and England will rise up together as the great allies to usher the world into the new era of, you know, Teutonic greatness. I can also, and I mean, you know, I can say that because of his obvious anti-Semitic streak. Uh, I can also see that, you know, this is Darlington who is so conservative that he does think of, you know, 20th century international politics as something that can be handled in drawing rooms like gentlemen. Um, like I said, honestly, in my view, part of the mastery of this novel is that Stevens is so discreet, even when he's narrating this, I think to one of the younger staffers, David thinks to himself, uh, that I can't really tell. So, uh, David, am I, am I, am I missing the smoking gun here or, uh, are, are you able to see through the smoke any better than I can? I can't really. Um, the, the one thing that, that, that seems to incline me towards the Darlington is naive, not Darlington is a, um, ideologically fascist Nazi collaborator, uh, is the fact that he regrets the decision to fire the, t the, the two Jewish, uh, housemates. Yeah, that's fair uh, enough. That's fair enough. The, the fact that he regrets that now, I, and also, and this, this is something that happens, um, with Stevens, both with Lord Darlington and with Faraday later is that his employers will, his employers will disclose themselves to him. Um, there's no particular reason why Lord Darlington needs to needs to confess his sin to his butler. And there might be many reasons why in that relationship, um, in the in, within the rules that define how they interact, that that might not that that might actually be a, a profoundly inappropriate thing for him to do. But he feels as if he needs to give some kind of an account. He need he needs to 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 speak to the wrongness of what he made Steve, Stevens complicit in. That 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 I think is 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 a moment that speaks to his character. Um, yeah, but I don't know how much I don't know how much that explains the other anti-Semitic things that he says, um, and it certainly doesn't. Uh, it certainly doesn't let you know the de the degree to which he's just being gentlemanly or he is being persuaded that something's happening in Germany that could have um, effects that he's more sympathetic with. Yeah, I, I, I like your word smokescreen because I really do think that the, that the, narration, um, the narration has that quality. It, it is very, very difficult to conclude from Stephen's narration what what we ought to think of Lord Darlington and he was in these rooms so he had to hear enough to draw a conclusion he just won't let us hear it right it's none of your business <laughs> uh-huh yep 
So back to back to Stevens. He tells us that a good butler disappears into his role, and I'd say that that sort of disappearance is the central tragedy of the novel. David, do you agree with me? Does he surrender his private life to his public role, and is that such a bad thing? I think that he does. Um, I think it could have been mitigated if he'd had a different notion of what his public role was. Uh, I, I think we get to see even in just the other glimpses of uh, other characters who are in domestic service, um, including Mrs. Uh, including Miss Kenton, um, folks who, 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 who are professional and do have and do have their role, um, but permit that role to include things like emotional reactions or moral judgments um you know when when miss kenton reacts with moral censure to the firing of the jewish handmaids i don't i do not see that as her slipping out of her public role and into a private role um because she she maintains the language of professionalism but her public role includes um includes that that assertion of the ethical um stevens doesn't i mean if 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 uh if there's a tragedy of of disappearance in this in in this novel and i'm not going to disagree that there is it's definitely tragic um i don't know that it's so much that he did surrender his private life to the public role so much as that he just made a very bad choice about what public role he would lose himself in um, I could maybe imagine a different butler <laughs> that he could have become, but that isn't what happens. Um, part of the reason why I'm reluctant to completely uh, to completely condemn this because of what he becomes, I do think he becomes something that's that by the time by the time you get to the end of the novel, um, it just seems like a private hell to be him. I do, I do still see something in the way this novel presents being a butler that reminds me of the abnegation of self in humility and obedience that is at, uh, at the core of uh, Christian monasticism. Um, that idea that um, something good happens in who you become in a life where you are not setting your agenda. You, you are not setting the agenda for yourself where your life is defined by um, obedience to the rule and obedience to the abbot um, in the performance of duty in the performance of office um, there, there are ways in which I see butlering discussed in this novel kind of overlapping with some of those things which um which, which I'm persuaded uh, have had uh, positive roles um, within the Christian tradition. I think, I think that as Americans, our, our desire to maintain um, our independent freedom to do what, to do what we like when we like um, and, and so seeing monasticism simply as a trap and maybe butlering 
simply as a misery um, might speak also to a narrowness of, of our of our perspective as well can you hear that I'm conflicted I'm conflicted <laughs> yeah I mean when it becomes a reduction to ethical loyalty to the employer um, it makes me think of uh, th things like that like the li like the literature of chivalry in which yes chivalry is about um, the relationship of a lord and a vassal and the loyalty of the vassal to the lord is you know the fundamental relationship there but there is also in the literature of chivalry the development of uh, an ethos that extends beyond have you simply obeyed your orders um, uh, things like chivalric codes um, both the fictional ones that you get in things like the Pentecostal oath and the Arthurian romances um, but also you know there were there were actual books that were that were codes of chivalry um, that were that were current that were circulating um, in the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance so that um, that that that, I, that idea of loyalty that that relationship of loyalty and obedience to the other um, also came with a lore that had ethical content I mean can we imagine butlers who also represent who who also have a kind of code of ethics that extends beyond just make sure nobody interrupts the party I mean maybe this is anachronistic but I keep thinking about Alfred and the role that he plays with you know Bruce Wayne oh I thought I thought you were talking about the Anglo-Saxon king I'm like how does that connect <laughs> <laughs> no not not that one well, let's uh, we we have gone over our normal time, so let's uh, let's try to get out of here in a hurry. Uh, this is a rich novel. We haven't said everything we could say about it, so let's close by going around the horn and talking about some important or interesting element of the remains of the day we haven't touched on yet. And after you do that, uh, say also how you feel about Ishiguro's winning the Nobel Prize, at least on the strength of this novel, which I think is the only one any of us have read. Uh, so Nathan, let's start with you. All right, so I'll do the last one first. I am such an uninformed reader of modern fiction, I'm perfectly happy for Ishiguro to have won the Nobel Prize. Good on you. Um, so I'll, I'll punt that one. Uh, as far as an element from this novel, uh, Miss Kenton, in her early appearances, is such a formidable character. Uh, I just loved her from the moment she stepped onto the page because uh, there is this you know, system of, you know, inherited privilege, even among the servants there at Darlington Hall. And uh, she is not having any of it, but she doesn't defy it in a way that breaks with the professionalism that people expect. But uh, this is one thing that I won't spoil for the readers because it was such a delight to read. Uh, she uses precisely the tools that are at her disposal as a member of the staff of Darlington Hall to assert that she will not be taken for granted. Uh, she will not be uh, dismissed when she should be taken seriously. Uh, she steps right in and, you know, lets Stevens Jr. and Stevens Sr. know uh, that she is Miss Kenton 
and she is not to be taken lightly. So uh, read this book from Miss Kenton. She's great. What do you got, Grubs? I was going to say Miss Kenton, too. Oh, I'm but, sorry. <laughs> but also, um, also Stephen Sr. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if, the, if if I ever said anything about this or uh, in the social media or whatever. Um, but my grandfather passed away. My father's father passed away very recently. And as I was reading this novel, I kept I kept thinking about him and the uh, the dignity with 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 the sort of quiet dignity with which men of my grandfather's generation went about doing their duty um and the the indignities of age um it's it's awful to read in this in this novel um to watch uh, to watch Mr. Stevens decaying in front of his son who speaks with him who speaks of him with such admiration um but to see him uh, his body failing him his 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 memory failing him uh is uh, yeah is, is 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 to me some of the some of the most gripping parts of the novel partly for personal reasons but partly because I think he captures he captures something um, really important. I mean, there there is uh, such a thing um, in in you know kind of the biblical tradition of you know, of gray hairs being a crown of glory, of there being a, a, a respect and a dignity and age that um, that is real and we should and we should honor, especially in our in our culture that you know just glorifies youth. But also, age and time and decay do awful things to humans. Um, and the, the novel's unflinching way of presenting that is, is, uh, was, was gripping to me. Um, but the, the man's dignity, even as age robbed him of it, I thought was just phenomenal. Um, as for whether he deserves a Nobel Prize, um, again, it's the only Shigeru novel I've ever read. Um... Sure. <laughs> Certainly, this one has, uh, uh, in terms of the Nobel Peace Prize, given the attention that this novel has to, you know, things of international moment and peace and and so forth. I don't know. I don't even know if that's a criterion anymore. Whether it's just literary quality. Um, good on him. I, I really loved this novel. Uh, like like you, I have not read any other Ishiguro, but if the rest of it is half as good as this, I don't have any problems. Certainly not as much problem as I had last year. Uh, with <laughs> I will point out there are people who think that Ishiguro won as, as a kind of deliberate middle finger to uh, Murakami, the, the Japanese novelist who has been favored to win this prize for, for the last 10 years. But I don't know enough about literary politics to know whether that's a valid reading or not i mean isn't every nobel prize supposed to be a middle finger at somebody well last year the dylan one was widely considered a middle finger to philip roth but i didn't hear anything about like alexievich a couple years ago or modiano i didn't hear anybody say that those were intentionally 
aggressive awards. Hmm. All right. Nathan, what are we doing next week? Next week is going to be the Christian Humanist Podcast annual Christmas episode. Uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, Washington Irving and the invention of American Christmas in England. Sounds great. Until then, if you're interested in getting in touch with us, our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger.